If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> so, uh, right, we'll start off with uh, the second half. Yeah, welcome back. Thanks. Welcome back, and new arrivals as well. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say, I, I don't think it's on the podcast that's come out yet, uh-huh. but we've started a new feature. Oh, yeah. Uh, the the Foo Fighters Nexus. Foo, Fight- yeah. Foo Fighters Nexus, because basically on every album we do, there's like a connection to Dave Grohl or Foo Fighters somehow. It's too difficult this week. I was just going to say, I can't think of any connections <laughs> yeah. to Dave Grohl and grunge. So we're not going to be able to do it. Can't. But, uh, fuck it. Just, just to recap, thorough and comprehensive history of grunge <laughs> in shambolic fashion. 21 pages of notes condensed into what felt like mere hours yeah. <laughs> of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I may have aged. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'll move on. We've all picked an album that we think is uh, in some way un- unsung, uh, underrepresented within the, the grunge catalogue. And David is going to start us off with Bad Motorfinger. Now, clearly, Super Unknown is the biggest... Uh, excuse me. Somebody got their phone on. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been me. <laughs> Uh, clearly, we would, we would kick you out, but it's just not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> really, anything goes. <laughs> um, yeah, Super Unknown was the biggest Soundgarden album, um, five million sales. And before David even opens his mouth, 
super unknown is fucking brilliant and would easily, I think, if you put Nirvana at one side, is the best album of the, the grunge era in my book. But Bad Motorfinger sold considerably less, but had an absolutely massive impact. So, Davey Boy. I never really got into Super Unknown. I don't know why. Yeah, it was the same. Maybe it's just been difficult. It's just, I don't know. Like, for me, when you decided, or when when we decided we were going to do grunge. <laughs> no, that was an insight in how Yeah, this when podcast. you decided we were going to do grunge, <laughs> uh, I was a little bit stuck because it was never a genre that. I don't know. It's obviously been influential. Can we not just do new metal too? Yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> um, but I was, I was into rock music and blah, blah, blah. But this was, this, the album that I chose, kind of, I remember I bought it in Dundee HMV when I was about 14. I bought two albums. I bought Bad Motorfinger by um, Soundgarden and I bought Rage Against the Machine first album because I just couldn't keep listening to Pantera and Korn all the time. I had to go back and do my homework. Where did this heavy music that I enjoy so much come from? <laughs> Funnily enough, if you'd waited a while, they would have joined forces and you could just have got one shitty album. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> oh, so, for me, <laughs> for me, Chris Cornell, I don't even like Black Hole Sun. And I think Chris Cornell, I, I think Soundgarden and Pearl Jam are the two bands that have a lot to ask, answer for when it comes to the shit that came after it. I mean, I would, I would take issue bands with that. Bands that sound like that. I would take issue with that. Grunge. I don't dispute the Pearl Jam thing. Pearl Jam, yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, absolutely. Chris Cornell's James Bond theme tune was shit. Fuck off. <laughs> what else? James Bond shit. You know my name! <laughs> Nah, it was rubbish. James Bond is hot garbage. Um, but I also thought Audio Slave was fucking shit. Audio yeah, Slave were, were diabolical. Yeah. They couldn't have sounded more like Led Zeppelin. I like Led Zeppelin. Oh, they're fucking terrible. Fuck off. Awful. <laughs> no, I really like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> this is going to degenerate fast. Um, <laughs> Not even sight But Led Zeppelin is such a huge influence on... Uh, everything, on ever. Well, everything, yeah. <laughs> but also on this particular Soundgarden album, and a lot of Soundgarden. And so did Robert Le- Plant's a massive influence on Chris Cornell. And I think Chris Cornell's at his best when he sounds the most Robert Plant. Malaria's had a big influence in human history as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah, so I bought this record and I just fucking loved it because it starts, I mean, it starts off with this and I was just like, hello. I think this song's fucking amazing. I think this album's amazing. Um, it's like mad guitars, amazing bass, the drums are just pounding. Um, I think this, this track is probably the best track on the record for me. Um, it's the one that I remember, but it also just sort of time, it ties everything up on this record that really stood out, like the sort of those weird time signatures, massive riffs, uh, Matt Tracking Cameron on bass the- tone. The bass tone's amazing. Uh, Matt Cameron on the drums, even though they've got like the weird time signatures happening and like uh, Chris and Kim were like their little riffs interchanging, the drums always drag it back and make it really solid. 
And then Chris Cornell just like singing like absolute fuck, which is great. Mm-hmm. And then there's a riff like three minutes in of this, you've been like, oh, this is pound and driving rock. Oh yeah, I'm enjoying this. And then, oh yeah, no, we listen to Black Sabbath a lot. I really like this album. I'm so happy that we did it, actually. This album is so prototypically grunge. Like, it's got some of the biggest, mm. best noises of, of that genre. I think Outshine, that's like the big... That was the first single. This is, yeah, this, this is the best thing that came out of that style, that branch of grunge here. Every single time I hear any of his voice on like any of the songs on this record, you just go, "Fucking hell, man! That guy could sing." And it's still like dirty. Like I think what happened after this was super unknown, and then just like Chris Cornell and commerciality. Like he's obviously always been an amazing vocalist. The first two uh, Soundgarden records are actually, I think he's kind of the weak link on them actually because he's powering a lot of high notes that he can't quite get yeah. to or the production just doesn't quite get. Apparently he- Henry Rollins is good friends with, or was good friends with Chris Cornell and used to make jokes in his live spoken word tours about how Chris Cornell would like strip paint from the walls when he hit falsettos. Yeah. Um, but Chris Cornell was like originally just, um, he, he, when Singgarden started he was the drummer and the singer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true, yeah, true they, story. They got um, and they gradually all switched places. They had a guy called Hiro Yamamoto that was in the band for ages and ages through all like Louder Than Love and Fop and Screaming Life and all that stuff. Um, and then in '90, Matt Cameron, eh, sorry, Ben Shepard came in, and Ben Shepard kind of became the like the definitive Soundgarden bass player. When I saw them at the Barras, uh, Ben Shepard was just having a bad night, but he played at least half of the set with his head pressed, like, diagonally leaning on his forehead against the side of the PA, just looking bored as shit. Mm. Um, that was the first gig I ever saw, 1995, uh, Soundgarden at the Barrowlands. What yeah. did you do for your first 30 years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lol. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have to be honest, like, you said about Soundgarden having a lot to answer for, they have mm. something to answer for, especially in that early period. They were basically cock rock. Cornell was always shirtless, fucking, you know, trying to... And he, he did impress a lot of people, let's be honest. He's um, been true to oneself. Can we take a straw poll here? Who would fuck Chris Cornell? The, the live one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a handsome lad. I mean, we don't have time to count all these hands, but that looks like the vast majority of the room. Um, <laughs> um, but... There are also points in this record that fucking are just so corny, uh, such as the track Holy Water.
lyrics on this album are not the strongest. A lot of them are complete fucking nonsense. Um, but I felt as though it was just all the Black Sabbath riffs that I, that I loved. All, like, all on this record. They use them all the time. It's amazing. I don't, you think they're any more guilty of Black Sabbath theft than anyone else? Well, there's a lot of it, though. There's a lot of it. Yeah, there's tons. But the lyrics, yeah, that's... I mean, I think Chris Cornell, on the lyrics that he wrote, he said that he just wanted to be vague and you can make up your own imagery and stuff, um, which is fine, because they just... They don't really mean anything. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, my favourite was... Uh, uh, Kim wrote the lyrics for Room a Thousand Years Wide and he said that the song is about experience in general. <laughs> <laughs> That's just beautiful, man. Thanks very much. Just stuff, you know. <laughs> things. Oh. Man. <laughs> so, uh, um, have you ever heard the, the track uh, Hands All Over from Louder Than Love? No. no so Louder Than Love nice. was when Soundgarden signed to a major and that was the one, it was A&M or something like that. A&M a- 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 Records? I think it was A&M, yeah. Yeah, I think A&M. And that was, that was the album that got them all the backlash from the punk crowd in Seattle that had been playing it. Because even though they sounded like cock rock, they all came from like a punk scene. Um, the song Hands All Over kind of blows my mind because obviously Pearl Jam brought out 10, maybe like three years later, four years later. Check us out. That's basically even flow. The start of even flow is so like, you talk about like incestuous it's the same scene. shuffle that even flow's got on it with the guitar yeah. bit, but yeah, it's essentially the same riff. That's a, that is a ballsy manoeuvre by any standards. Soundgarden were also the... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you're not... You're not Closing your throat enough. Um, is there a name for that? Grunge. No. Is there a name for <laughs> Is there a name for that vocal style? I, I, see, the thing is, it's now like the American rock vocal style, basically. Closed vowels. Closed vowels. Open vowels. To vedder. <laughs> How does one ved? Full <laughs> vedder. Is vedder the most guilty of it? I think. Well, I don't know. No. Aye. Yes. Yeah, Scott Stapp. A lot of people in Scotland would just go, Scott, stop. Sorry. You, equally reprehensible. Uh, do you think Kurt Cobain was guilty of that? I think at, at points you can hear it on... <laughs> the votes are in. Songs, some songs he did, I think, but not... Uh, Lane Staley was bad for it. Yeah, Lane Staley was very bad for it. Really bad. Yeah, they were. They found it, so they were just <laughs> playing about with it. I don't know, actually. Surely that's better for your throat than doing the big open shrill thing. Well, but uh, see, when I think of grunge, I think of like the cracked vocal, like the the the, the gravelly crack. So, like, obviously, I've picked hole. And one of the big things about Courtney Love was that she had a fantastic voice when it broke. Like 
still had the same thing, though. She still had that same sound, even though she was a female. No, she didn't. She, she, did, she did, did, did do that. It's like that kind of weird Georgia American Southern, like, that kind of thing. That, that, that didn't really happen <laughs> in Hole. I, I don't think it happened as much in Nirvana either. I think no, it, not as much. It doesn't seem, it's not a mud honey tree. It seems like it's something that went up that. You know, if you left and right branch, the left branch being that mud honey Melvin's thing that we spoke about, you don't catch Buzz Osborne doing that. You know, he's just his vocals are far too fucking weird anyway. Yeah. But um, going up the right branch with like the Temple of the Dog and Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, yeah, Allison Chains, Stone Temple Pilots are really guilty of it. That that whole kind of like closed vowels uh, approach seemed to really become like synonymous with it. And it's also like I said, it's like the standard American rock singer sound now as well. When I met like yeah, big that's true. The big American hard rock bands they all use they all sound like that. Like fucking what's his name? Miles Kennedy. He's really close to being like Chris Cornell in terms of his range and sound, but he still has the same the same vocal tics, you know. Is it sing like that? Possibly, yeah. Mm. Mm. It, like I think it does feel slightly safer uh, from a singing point of view. It seems like it's kind of mm-hmm. it's a softer approach. You're not really putting too much strain, but um, it's fucking horrible though. It's, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. Jesus, <laughs> fuck! It's a terrible legacy to have, and people. It's like people took it further and further and further. Like you say, with like Creed and mm. bands like that, and there's 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 worse out there. I Cornell guess. wasn't as guilty of it though as, as a lot of other singers. I don't think so. No, but yeah. I, I definitely. He did do a fair bit, though. He also um, blew his voice out. Like if if you hear the if you hear the demo version of Coaches, like the Audio Slave song, it sounds his voice is completely different to how it sounds in the recording. Even on that record, his voice isn't as good as it was in Soundgarden or later. Especially when he did that amazing record with Timberland. Is <laughs> <laughs> that, that sincere? That's it's a real thing. It's horrible. Um, the solo record with Timberland. Well, right, so this, this came out in like October 91, mm-hmm. right? But as we said earlier on, Soundgarden were the reason, really, that Sub Pop became Sub Pop. It's the reason that Jonathan Poneman, who was a DJ who had heard the Soundgarden demos and early stuff, invested $20,000 in Sub Pop initially. It's the reason they incorporated, and it was all kind of set up to help uh, release the, the Soundgarden stuff before Soundgarden signed a major. Um, so they were really like, really pivotal, not just in terms of their own sound, but uh, and the success of that label, but in terms of like the whole grunge movement, because sub pop, as we discussed, were so key to the marketing nous around um, making the Seattle sound uh, an actual marketable entity. Even the Seattle look, all of that just came from this one clever. Uh, uh, conflation of different aspects of their local culture. So Soundgarden are like absolutely crucial when you consider that they were the linchpin behind Sub Pop going from being just a guy's bedroom project to an actual full label. There's there's bigger tracks in this though. I mean that song, uh, Jesus Christ Pose, again, uber shirtless Chris Cornell just going mad on MTV. 
was like one of the, the first one by them to get picked up, and it got kind of quite heavy rotation. Yeah, apparently they also, um, when they went on their UK tour, they got death threats because of what was perceived as an anti-Christian uh, message. Not exactly. Didn't very really subtle. Said his name. This is anti-Christian, just like we are Christ. <laughs> I don't know how anti that is if you're just supplanting the Messiah for yourself. It's a pretty devastating song. Yeah, yeah, it's pounding. Yeah, that's yeah. What I would say. Are you going to play the song? I can stick it on. Bit? Yeah, it's a belter. Another um, another way that this I think was kind of pivotal is that even though Bad Motorfinger wasn't nearly as big as Super Unknown, it was the profile, albeit somewhat limited, but the profile of Bad Motorfinger, combined with the the subsequent explosion of Nevermind, that first popularised the thing in the press over here as well. So like building on the back of that quite clever publicity that Sub Pop had gotten, and Melody Maker. Never mind going to number one, and this also being about at the time, it was just enough for it to acquire that critical mass that there was suddenly a Seattle sound, and it was a lot of power chords, and it was uh, long hair and quite dishevelled, and quite owed a lot to Black Sabbath, but a bit more punky and considered really credible. It was like the Guns and Roses that it was not retarded to like. <laughs> so I, yeah, like personally, I've actually I've got a lot of time for it, and I. Virtually never listen to this album because it's so stodgy and overblown. But at the same time, when you put it on, I'm like, Fuck yeah, it. no, it's great. It does kind of rule, but yeah. I just don't want to fucking. That's what, it. yeah, that's what I kind of have as my like summing up notes. Isn't that it's not perfect, but it's sort for me it like defines grunge as well. In that it's not a perfect genre, and I go oh, when I think about it. But then when I put it on. There's definitely some fucking belters on it. I just think it kind of misrepresents Soundgarden, though, because Soundgarden were a much smarter band than this this album. This is a dumb album. Like, I mean, mm, not sure. There's like a lot of cool stuff on it. Interest There's a lot of cool rock stuff, but it's not. It, it isn't pushing any particular envelope. They'd already been playing this style of music. It's better produced, and Johnny Cash liked one of the tunes, or at least his management did. But. Um, it doesn't really take as many chances as the band took, even on Super Unknown, which was much, much bigger. So like, there's a track on Super Unknown called Fourth of July, which is as heavy as I think Soundgarden ever got. By the way, as a kid, I tried to learn that song guitar. It's not fucking happening. Um, especially since <laughs> Soundgarden were famous for like tuning their guitars completely differently uh, between each song. And that song, if I remember rightly, was tuned B B B G G. What the <laughs> fuck? I'm not going to do that to my guitar. I'm, like turn it into a banana. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like so, like. Kim Tyle especially was like a really innovative guitarist and he did a lot of stuff that was dead weird and dead unconventional with the tunings. They must have had like, you know, you see that thing where a band's got like a rack of guitars at the side of the stage mm. and somebody that swaps them over. And then you also know that when a local band has ideas way above its station, they've got a rack of guitars. Yeah. And you're like, fuck off, you could play everything there on like a, <laughs> an SG copy. But um, 
Soundgarden did genuinely have loads of different fucking guitars, at least for Kim Tile, um, because they were tuned to such mental different things. And their book of tablature that I got as a kid for Super Unknown is just, there's letters in there that aren't even, <laughs> just hieroglyphics. Um, but I, th I think people underestimate how interesting the band actually was, um, and kind of carried that on as well to the, the well, I want to say their last album, unfortunately it wasn't their last album, um, but Down in the Upside, uh, before their extended hiatus, and th there was a lot of stuff in that, amidst some big singles, like Burden in My Hand, or big-ish singles, but it was just, again, I think just way more interesting. Uh, there's a couple of great tracks, and there's a track called Rhinosaur, that's really, really good, uh, and a, ca a track called Overfloor, but in the middle of the album there's a track called Apple Bite, which is totally surreal, and kind of, to me, more represents what Soundgarden were about. Just like, much, much more interesting than I think their early career suggested, and they had m much more interesting ideas. So I don't fall out at all with a bad motor finger for like simple fucking thrills, but I, I don't think it's by any means anywhere near as good as the band got. I think Down on the Upside is a better overall album and it's also unsung. Well, I think you're wrong. Mm. Thanks. Mm. Next album. I tell you what, <laughs> I tell you what is incredibly unsung and rightly so. Their fucking last album, which I didn't even know about, um, thank goodness. Like uh, the one that the... King Animal. Yeah, let's not. Did anybody else in here know that Soundgarden had an album called King Animal? No. Even the people that professed that they would absolutely do Chris Cornell had no idea. They all come out in 2007? No, like later, like 10, I think, 10 or 11. Um, yeah, uh, and also, also includes that rock star thing of like, so Soundgarden have been out the game for fucking, I don't know how many years at this point, like 13. And they're like, hey, we're making a comeback. We're going to do a tour. We're going to release an album. What will we do? We'll start the album with a track called Been Away Too Long because we're fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll include that line. So, uh... Like it. <laughs> oh man, that's such a fucking cringe. Um, and it's not like terrible, it's actually like, it sounds like Soundgarden, you know, it's like, it's, it's not awful, but yeah. fuck, it's point, it shouldn't have happened. It's a totally unnecessary thing to happen. So, I don't know, Mark, how do you feel about Bad Motorfinger? I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's just fun. It is, it is fun, it's, it's, it is a bit more, it is a bit more like a sledgehammer, I suppose, compared to Super Unknown. Yeah. Um, I like that about it. It's a band that kind of sound like they know what they want to do, and they do a lot of it. Yeah. There's a lot of Beatlesy vibes on it as well, I think. Um, some Eastern stuff on it, which reminded me of Within You Without You and all that. Yeah, there's definitely some cool. psychedelic mm. influences on which it. I think it's quite interesting, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, they're big Zeppelin fans, man. The Zeppelin yeah. love that as well, obviously. You know, let's take that scorn away. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just anyway, it's not your album, so fuck off. <laughs> I really like this album. Thanks. I'm, I'm just trying to influence the public vote. Yeah, well, that's, that's you're done. Up here. Well, Mark. Think, yeah, we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, let's <laughs> move on. Uh, so I, I picked Super Fuzz Big Muff by Mudhoney, and the name of the record sums up the sound of the record. <laughs> I think completely. 
starts me off with Touch Me I'm Sick, which is just so fucking fuzzy, it's unreal. And um, there's a great part of 1 minute 28. <laughs> Say. I was going to say like, it's, a, it's a killer song. There's a great bit just earlier on um, from from that where it does the kind of stop-start thing. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of a band called the Sonics? No. Right. So the Sonics were a band from like the Northwest as well, um, but like from the 60s, mm. um, and they were famously cacophonous, especially for the fucking 60s. Like it was really ridiculous what they were doing given the time um, so this is a track called The Witch and it's actually a live version of The Witch by the Sonics but these guys took kind of rock at the time and just basically developed what became Garage like which was like 60s rock but overdriven Touch me, I'm sick. Yeah. <laughs> Even does the kind of stop gap yeah. thing, man. Yeah. So it's like, but Sonic's were mass, a massive influence on Mark Arm, especially. Mark Arm, not, not Mark Yarm, Mark Yarm, Mark the writer. The Sonic's may have influenced him, but it doesn't come across in his prose. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the best, like, for me, when I heard this, it was like, oh, this is kind of what grunge is, you know, if that makes sense. Um, it's really punky. And it doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. You, you mentioned Jack and Dino as well. I mean, the sound of this is, is pretty, it's pretty raw and on point. Yeah, well, like we said about the branches of grunge, that whole kind of dispute over what the fuck actually is grunge. This is the left branch, if you will. This is like where... This is the punk side, not the metal side. Exactly, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is the, the side of it. You know, those guys left Green River because the guys from, that went on to do Pearl Jam were far too obsessed with closed vowels and um, these guys were like, no, we're punks and we want to be on an independent label and we want to make really dirty, raw music and we come from like these really simple backgrounds and want to fucking just uh, play awesome shows. By the way, interesting fact, again, from Mark Yarm's book. Um, not Mark Arm. Not Mark Arm. Mark Arm might have a book. Yeah. I haven't checked. Um, but Mark Yarm uh, has a book called Everybody Loves Our Town, as I've mentioned already. There's a fucking brilliant bit at the start where they're talking about the kind of guerrilla shows that used to put on in Seattle and in the towns like Aberdeen and stuff that mm -hmm. Kurt Cobain and the Melvins came from. And apparently they used to put shows on in warehouses, and this is fucking genius, uh, but they'd always get raided by the cops, especially for selling booze. So they started putting them on in industrial sites and putting the bar in the elevator, right? <laughs> and when someone at the front spotted the cops, they would just lift the elevator up a floor and the cops would come in and they'd be like, what bar? What the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, Jesus, that's <laughs> fucking brilliant. No wonder these guys became so famous. Um, that's a great idea. It's a terrific idea, yeah, absolutely. Pretty dumb cops, though, so you yeah. can kind of <laughs> feeds back into that animosity that was going on. Um, yeah, so like Mud Honey were fucking pivotal. This was the first album, and Touch Me, I'm Sick was actually the first thing Absolutely, they released yeah. on mm -hmm. Sub Pop. Um, and they, like, they'd formed in 1988 after the whole Green River split, and Steve Turner and Mark Arm had gone on to do Mud Honey uh, with Matt Lucan, who had been in Melvin's. The band got its name for a Russ Meyer film. Um, but yeah, they were, they were the, the kind of credible, kind of hip, really cool underground branch of it. They did a lot of stuff with Sonic Youth, like um, toured with them. I split a single with them. 
yeah. the Halloween covers on there? Aye, that's, it, that's brilliant. I've got that vinyl, actually, mm. and it's like one band covers the other band on either side. Um, Sonny used to touch me, I'm sick. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it out there. Yep. Sparks are flying between <laughs> us. Um, Kurt Cobain said this was one of his favourite records of all time. You, were, you can hear them, the influence totally they had in Nirvana. Totally but I mean, Nirvana yeah. were a thing in 1988. They mm. didn't start really releasing stuff until later, but they were, they were already a, an existing band. Mm. And they were already playing shows and causing quite a lot of fuss. But he was just a huge fan of this record itself. Mudhoney, pl- like their inclusion and compilations played a big part early on as well in like the Sub Pop 200 mm. thing. Just to give a bit of context, the albums that came after this, like Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge and uh, Piece of Cake, also had like tremendous stuff in them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they were as immediately energetic as this album. Like, it's like an album, it's, it's an EP plus some singles really. Yeah, because well, so it, it came out as an EP yeah, to start yeah. with and then they added the early singles. So it does sound a little bit inconsistent, but it's also just totally vibrant all yeah. the way through. It's so kinetic. I could, I could, imagine, I could imagine somebody like Kirk Cobain who, who started a band and thought, like, and be seeing his contemporaries and going, I want my band to be like that. You know, it must have been seeing them live, especially hearing this record, must have been like wonderful because they just sound like they're having the best fucking time and you just don't give a fuck about the, what's happening. The Charles Peterson photo that's the cover of this as well kind of sums them up as well. That kind yeah. of photo of Mark and I don't know who it is, Matt maybe, falling forwards into the camera. Um, the track In and Out of Grace. And this is fucking brilliant. And it also features a sample from a film called The Wild Angels. Yeah. It's Peter Fonda talking. I think it's one of the most sampled bits of any movie. Mm-hmm. There's even a, there's a, a song called Loaded by Primal Scream yeah. that makes a big use yeah. as well, a Roger Corman film. Jesus, take me to a higher place! A guitar solo just coming up as well, which is pure thin Lizzy. <laughs> it really is. You, you hear such strange No, it's like a harmonised guitar solo like Thin Lizzy would do. One minute 32. Dave, pull up Thin Lizzy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same idea. Well, it's a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Two guitars playing at the same time. A guy playing a guitar with his fingers. They have totally ripped off Thin Lizzy in that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, what, what, would you, what else stuck out in this album for you, man? Why did you Why a did you? A lot of it was really good, man. Hate the Police is brilliant. Uh, weirdly, I only picked three tracks to play bits of and Hate the Police is the other one. Can I just can I stick that one? Because I fucking love this yeah, tune, man. It's so, so, so good. good man. It's a, cover it's a great like. start to this tune, man. Just that it's really juvenile, the mm. lyrics, though. Right. Cover? Yeah, but um, it's such a fucking pure L sentiment at the start. Just some kid complaining to his mum. And you can hear where Nirvana came from. <laughs> I think. Yeah, that is a very Nirvana yeah. bit in that track. Absolutely. Also, uh, no one has. No one has. Um, I think it's probably the best production on the record. It's got a really claustrophobic drum sound at the start. There's 
also Need as well, which I think is basically a Nirvana song. Yeah, I was going to say, do you listen to a lot of Nirvana? Sometimes. Need as well sounds like Nirvana. There's a lot. I think Kurt took a lot off this, man. Kurt took, took a lot of stuff off this record. I mean, we should tell him <laughs> <laughs> that we're on to him. Maybe someone did. I think on April the 5th. Maybe that's what happened. 1994. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe Mark Yarm, not Mark Arm. Mark Yarm turned up. Like, I'm writing a book, by the way, and I've, I've figured out that you've just bumped all my tummy's riffs. No. He's went, oh, fuck. That's a shotgun. No, it was probably Courtney. <laughs> um, no, so I've. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a fucking absolutely brilliant album. Yeah. This is this is a total classic. Um, like I said, it's a correct choice. In a completely different grunge way, though, from mm-hmm. uh, Soundgarden. Not in as big a different grunge way from 10 by Pearl Jam, which would have been the ultimate contentious choice, because that's like, that's the album that made everyone arena rock. But this was the album that made everything cool and punk and actually interesting and kind of, I don't know, just this was the album and this whole branch of grunge was the branch that was dead positive and like LGBT causes and was dead like, like anti-misogyny and, mm. and it was just a really interesting movement and yeah. it did basically start from this record um, and Mudhoney were fucking the masters of that at the time. This is a part of grunge which was definitely influenced by hardcore, you know, by the DC hardcore scene and the vibe and the, the ethos and all that, you know. Mm. As well as the New York art scene, like Sonic mm. Youth and we've spoken about um, Blonde Redhead, that kind of stuff. It was like these guys were all sort of taken from the same sounds. But classically, because it was really good and came from that, Wikipedia says that during initial release, this EP sold incredibly poorly, <laughs> <laughs> even by sub-pop standards. So, but that's great. Yeah, but retrospectively, this is one of the records that benefited the most yeah, from Nirvana. Totally. It's, and it's very, very influential yeah. as well. It's like that's all the re-releases were... were partly because of the sudden increase in interest in Sub Pop, because Sub Pop's logo was featured on Nirvana Records as part of their signing to Geffen, yeah. and Sub Pop's logo being on those records created so much extra business for Sub Pop at the time. Um, and that's why albums such as this, especially that Kurt Cobain was talking about in interviews, started to shift in quantities that they far exceeded what they'd shifted in at the time. So this is the correct choice. People should vote it in. I like this I think album. It's, it's a good choice. I think it's probably a better choice than Bad Motorfinger. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's your choice then, Chris? My choice was me trying to be deliberately difficult. That's very unlike you. <laughs> I thought so too. Okay. So one thing about grunge that's really fucking irritating is that it incredibly male-dominated. Like, there were women on the scene, there were women involved in the bands, there were inv- women involved behind the scene, it, they tried to be really inclusive of women, generally speaking, and, and Nirvana especially were fucking, like, the first time when I was a kid that I realised that feminism was even a thing. Like, it was the first time, like, and yes, I was 35 at the time, or whatever it was. <laughs> <the time. laughs> but um, they were the first time that I was actually thinking about these things consciously, like, when um, Kurt and Chris were, like, winching on stage in the Live Tonight sold out video and stuff and just doing whatever they could to make people in the crowd as uncomfortable as possible who came from the kind of cock rock scene. People who did fucking get Soundgarden at Guns N' Roses shows and Cobain was trying to... I suppose that's something that we haven't talked about in the big, you know, what is grunge definition was that it was very much a reaction to what was huge at the time in terms of commercial rock music and that 
misogyny led like glam rock, cock rock, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Kiss. But I think before, in fact, mm-hmm. it's worth mentioning before we even go into Hole um, that I think that's kind of conflicted because one branch of grunge really sort of swept that shit away. Like the Nirvana side of grunge was like yeah. very anti that. At every possible opportunity, they were mocking that, you know, and they were working against it. And it, Nirvana, more than anybody, I think more than even grunge as a movement proportionally, contributed to the downfall of all those bullshit, poison, fucking skid row sales that we saw. Like even what was it, 1993, skid row, fucking skid row, are still in like the, the, the number one, like, one of the top ten selling albums of the year. Um, I don't know that Soundgarden and Pearl Jam did anything to sweep that shit away. Soundgarden and Pearl Jam were the, the only viable way for those people to suddenly enjoy grunge. Because mm. it, was, it was... Well, yeah, the audience moved on. I think they got they moved on to the new sound, but they were still the same people. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're listening to the song Alive, Alive was the, the, the point where you jumped from Guns N' Roses to grunge. You, you weren't jumping from... Guns and Roses to touch me, I'm sick. Mm-hmm. You were you were going in from that angle, so I'm 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 not sure that it was grunge that kind of cleared that shit out. I think it I think to be fair, I think it was more Nirvana, and I think even bands like Pixies and Sonic Youth had more to do with that than than uh, albeit Sonic Youth had had ten years of trying, but it, it took that critical mass to to really make it happen. But it is a huge yeah right, it's a huge issue because that like that cock rock scene was fucking massive and sold way more records because I mean that was when record sales were just ridiculous and there was so much money sloshing about in Los Angeles which is obviously in the same coast and a lot of those bands were like Duff McKagan came from Seattle and went down and ended up in Guns N' Roses and he was apparently still really good friends with the guys at the Mudhoney um, but yeah I mean they, they took a sledgehammer at that scene pretty much overnight in, in musical terms like really really levelled it the hair metal scene was very misogynistic, but the grunge scene was still very male-dominated. It was still had very poor representation. Just down the road, you had the Riot Girl scene taking place, and you also had a lot of bands, um, L7, um, Babes in Toyland, um, who were coming up and sounded somewhere between Riot Girl and grunge. Um, I think Hole were the best example, though, um, just in terms of clicking and making a big impact and having a really striking like basically front woman uh, a, a character to, to really carry them they, uh, but whole whole formed in Los Angeles they weren't they weren't a, a northwest uh, band but um, sort of relocated to Olympia and that kind of area Courtney Love was in San Francisco for a while because she was actually a member of Faith No More briefly Albeit I don't think it went particularly well, but I don't think anything goes particularly well in Faith No More. They all hate each other. So she she wasn't exactly an exception to the rule. She'd like placed an advert in 1989 that was like citing Big Black and Sonic Youth and Fleetwood Mac as the model for this band that she wanted to start. And like the early whole stuff is actually not a million miles away from a blend of, the, of those, those different influences. Their first album was uh, Pretty on the Inside, which was produced by Kim Gordon, actually. Um, in 1991, uh, and it's much rougher, like much nastier. It's definitely a much more punk record. Though. Oh yeah, I mean it, it is an absolute punk record. It's an out and out punk record. Yeah, 
Courtney Love actually says that Pretty in the Inside's unlistenable now, which is fucking ironic, given everything that Courtney Love's done since she, she did that. But uh, that was, it was again, another th- another example as well of like one of these American Northwest bands doing well in the UK. Because they didn't really make a big splash in the States, but they went into like the UK indie chart at like number one with the song Teenage Whore. And um, the album itself was number 59 in the overall charts, which for an album that dirty and heavy and obscure is pretty fucking good going. And I think their first single uh, was a song called Retard Girl. were never like a, a household name, at least to begin with. But then again, Courtney Love made no secret of the fact that she had like big ambitions throughout. She tried different stuff before she even did Hall. She was in, if anyone's seen Sid and Nancy um, with Gary Oldman, um, Courtney Love is, is in that. And actually it was originally meant to be cast as Nancy, but I don't know, maybe they just didn't want her on set quite, quite as often. And, um, and she was in a film called Straight to Hell as well. So she'd like dabbled in a few things in LA. Um, she had a lot of like connections, like, uh, I mean, obviously her, her connection to Billy Corgan is pretty well documented. They toured with Sma- uh, Smashing Pumpkins, they toured with Mudhoney. Um, There's actually a really famous incident that happened when they were touring Mudhoney that I'll come back to. On the back of this, uh, they were actually approached by Madonna's label, Maverick, which is the label that also put out the first Deftones album. And Maverick kind of had a little always seems to have had a fairly decent finger on the pulse so like interesting bands that are uh, happening underneath but I think apparently Courtney Love was quite alienated by the fact that it was Madonna's label she made a comment about Madonna's interest in their band being like Dracula's interest in his first victim again with Courtney Love it's just like a bag of contradictions when you consider where she took her own career and but the band signed with Geffen for this album in 1993 for a seven album deal, like for $3 million, or at least that was a reported deal. They got more money for signing McGeffen than Nirvana. And seven albums is just insane, especially if you consider it in light of, like you get a one album deal now, maybe two. That, that was wild, especially, and, and for a band that was heavy, sludgy, antisocial, getting into all kinds of bother at their shows. <laughs> she uh, she got in a fist fight with Kathleen Hanna backstage. At, uh, I think it was either Reading or Lollapalooza. I can't remember what one. They punched Kathleen Hanna in the face and had numerous less than flattering things to say about the Riot Girl movement, um, which again I'll, I'll come back to. Live through this. I just think is one of the most perfect coming togethers of alternative punk. You know, it's the kind of music that your fucking family hate, and that's great but it's incredibly tuneful and it, it lasts really, really well. Like, when you mention to people that you're doing this and they actually listen to it, live through this, they're like, fucking forgot how good this album actually is and how well this album, a bit like Nevermind, balances between Miss World and jangly kind of pop, albeit the subjects were pretty dark, through to like Gutless. It's, it's such a well-constructed record and it's such a good length and it's got a really great image it's got a consistent kind of very strong uh, theme throughout relating to femininity and relating to notions of like body image and uh, self-esteem and culture and it's like even just the, the, the track titles like give that stuff away like Miss World Plump, Asking For It Jennifer's Body, Doll Parts it's, it's um, really 
tonally consistent throughout and was something that I think, not speaking as a young woman, but it must have been really refreshing to hear something come out to rival the quality, I never mind, but from that other perspective. I mean, I think um, that's really interesting because that is a very feminine record and, and at a time, like you say, when it was mostly male-dominated. And that's why I don't really buy it when I mean, a lot of people... There was a lot of, of rumours going around at the, at the time, and probably still to this day, that Kurt Cobain helped write quite a lot of it. There's a lot of, a lot of nous in the lyrics, which kind of make me say I don't really think he could have done it. Uh, Although I do, I do know that she very clearly stated that she was openly in competition with him, because she wanted to be a better songwriter than ever he ever was. Yeah, I think this is like the opposite of a record that Kurt Cobain wrote. Yeah. It's like the record that Kurt Cobain inspired, but like all the talent was with Courtney. Uh, very her record. I don't know if I'd go completely with Courtney because and Eric. Eric Eric Erlinson. Yeah, but I mean it's her personality that shines yeah. through and it's her right, it's, it's, I, I don't think it's quite as clean cut as that, right? Because so, like, Courtney you, you, you don't want to like can't marginalise her. Her and Eric Erlinson wrote this album. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of it. No question. Right? Yeah. Um, but uh, quite apart from the rumours about Kurt Cobain and Kurt Cobain sang on the record he sings on two tracks he sings on Asking For It and Softer Softest mm-hmm. um, but he also apparently sang on uh, Violet Miss World and Dull Parts that, were, that didn't make the, the mix mm-hmm. um, actually I've got a version of I'll play the version of Asking For It which is without Kurt And there's also, if you hunt about on the internet, as I tend to do at 3am, you can find the version that has him hideously high in the net. I think a lot of people, because Kurt was like, they're singing assumed that he'd had a bigger role in the songwriting in this record than he actually did. Mm. Um, the engineers that were in the studio at the time said that he didn't, he was reluctant to even sing in it because he didn't know the songs. And so it doesn't really seem like he had that big an input yeah. into in what was on the record. However, there is something to the rumour though, because if you check this out, there was tracks that were recorded for that that didn't make the album itself. Um, there's a track called Old Age. And that was from the same sessions uh, and appeared on My Body the Hand Grenade, which was a release that they put out. And then when Nirvana brought out their collection with the lights out, Courtney objected to that and got into a big stramash with Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic. And partly it was because of this. And Nirvana had already written and recorded that song. So you can see why people did make certain assumptions about how much of this actually was written by Courtney uh, and Eric. 
Actually, looking into it as well, what's even more compelling is the fact that the backing vocals were done by a woman called Dana Kletter. The most prominent point is on dull parts on this album. I want to be the girl with the most cake. I love him so much it just turns to hate. And the rumours are that Dana Kletter actually did a lot of the writing on this. Um, the band obviously vehemently deny it, but it seems like the engineers are a much more sympathetic to that perspective than they were to the mm. one of Kurt having been involved in the writing. So, like Ennard McCourtney, it's kind of hard to know what to believe and what not to believe. What is definite is that when they brought out Celebrity Skin, the track Celebrity Skin was written by Cobain and the track Dying was written by Cobain. And then if you look at, and that's on the sleeve notes, and then if you look at uh, the sleeve notes as well, there's five tracks credited to Billy Corgan, um, Billy Cor her ex-boyfriend. And Billy Corgan later came out after Celebrity Skin was released and said, the whole album should have been credited to me. They had ideas, but then I, I basically wrote the whole record. And again, obviously the band took exception to that. Uh, Patty Schemmel, especially, <laughs> who then get punted out the band in the most ridiculous style. There's a, there's a film about Patty Shemmel's story in Hole, which is fucking tremendous, and about how she played the whole of uh, Celebrity Skin, then was replaced by a, a session drummer for the actual proper mix of the album without her being told. It's, it's horrendous. Um, and really, really insightful into the, the atmosphere and the level of ambition that Courtney Love had uh, created within that band. I think um, it's really interesting as well, you didn't mention it, but um, how also played You Know You're Right live before this record came out, and that was one of the reasons why she was yeah. pissed off about when the lights came out. Do you know the famous anecdote that um, supposedly Kurt had donated uh, a song, I think, I think it was old, it, it wasn't maybe old age. Kurt had apparently donated a song to Hole, or donated, they used to do this as a couple, donated something to each other. And Courtney donated a, a riff to Nirvana at, at one point when they were courting. I don't know how true this actually is, but the riff was Come As You, uh, Come As You Are. It, you know, the, the famous bit that David was playing earlier. How does it go? Doom, 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 doom. Tell you how it goes, it goes fucking killing joke. Because Nirvana got taken to Nirvana got taken to court for that riff and lost three million dollars for that riff. Cheers, Courtney. And then she goes and kills Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> you would throw that in so early, man. I'm trying. I'm trying to remain dignified and stay off, stay above the million. Sometimes. Um, I live through this itself. Obviously, is in the song "Asking for It," and the title or that lyric comes from the film "Gone with the Wind." And the album sold, I think it's about 1.6 million in the States. It was recorded in Georgia on the advice of Smashing Pumpkins. There's a lot of things that point to her taking on board the influence of the people around her, but she definitely was a bit of a sponge. What's a fascinating detail of this album is it came out two days after Kurt Cobain's memorial. Like it was, it was scheduled for release exactly one week to the day after the day he shot himself in the head. And obviously the release went ahead, um, but 
that was a fascinating detail at the time. Um, the bassist in Hole for this album, a girl called Kristen Pfaff, P-F-A-F-F, she had been really close to Kurt Cobain. And Kristen left Hole after Kurt killed himself. Now, I have no idea what the motivation for that was, whether there was a bit of rivalry. But um, Kristen Pfaff had moved from Minneapolis. She'd moved to Seattle. she got in with Hole, especially Eric Erlinson, who later admitted that he felt somewhat responsible for her death. She left Seattle when Kurt died, went back to Minneapolis. She's apparently a super gifted bassist and cellist. And supposedly when they recorded this album, she did what's called guide tracks for the bass. Uh, and they ended up not doing a single overdub because our guide tracks were absolutely perfect on their first take. And they were like, for every single song, she nailed every single song on a guide track, which is just pretty much unheard of. So she was a really, really gifted musician. She went to Minneapolis, came back to Seattle to get her stuff, and was found the next day by her friend who'd come to pick her up to take her away. And she'd overdosed and was found in the flat. And she'd only gotten into heroin from moving to Seattle, supposedly. And she'd only moved to Seattle because her dad had persuaded her to do it. She'd been offered the gig with Hole. She didn't want it. Her dad was like, it's a big opportunity. So you can imagine how they felt after it. And it, it seemed like a really tragic story, uh, especially seeing as she was so devastated by Kurt's death in the first place. Um, Kristen Pfaff is also in a band called Janet or Joe, by the way, who are really, really good. They're an amphetamine reptile. Um, really cool band. Interesting fact, uh, Hole's original band name was supposedly Sweet Baby Crystal Powered by God. Mm-hmm. Catchy. Rolls off the tongue. It. <laughs> um, and doesn't lend itself as well to constant puns <laughs> the way Hole does. <laughs> as we've noticed. I'm not getting started on them. <laughs> well, <laughs> we went down a, a hole earlier on in that. <laughs> um, Kristen Pfaff did say that this album was recorded am- amidst a, quote, abundance of crystal meth. Like, supposedly, they were just absolutely fucked. I love that word, abundance, when used with crystal meth. I can't. <laughs> it's just everywhere. Oh, some more. I can't <laughs> claim credit for that. Um, and it got voted Album of the Year in Spin. So, I mean, it wasn't, by any means, uh, an under-the-radar album. But in terms of sales figures, it doesn't even touch some of the other ones. It certainly is nowhere even close to Nevermind. The album itself has some really, really interesting stories behind the actual tracks. Probably the most interesting story for us, given that we've recorded this in Glasgow, is the track that we just listened to, Asking For It. Um, that is about a gig that Hole played at supporting Mudhoney at the QMU, where Courtney decided near the end of the set to stage dive, and then got trapped in the crowd, was kind of held above the crowd, they ripped off all of her clothes, and then she was like physically violated by members of the crowd and unable to get off the crowd surf and described actually being penetrated by people in the crowd and people shouting slogans at her. And it was quite a, quite a famous instant. Like when I'd mentioned we were doing this, that was the first thing that some, one of my friends said was like, did you know that's where that song came from? And it's like, a, it does show that, that that enthusiasm of grunge and that scene for women's rights, uh, you know, ended at a certain point and it's also part of the reason why Kurt Cobain hated so much some of the some of the components of his audience that had come over to them from other musical genres. He kinda blamed that where that wasn't so taken for granted. Um there were I mean just just behind things like like Violet is apparently written about uh, Billy Corgan. I think it's a brilliant bit of songwriting Violet actually. It's just a really strange idea and a strange choice to go first but it's become so iconic you should learn how to say no 
this is such a nice inclusion of some really great guttural, heavy, nasty tracks. And a track called Plump that comes in third that I think is just such a brilliant fucking tone. And then you've got the track Jennifer's Body, which obviously became the title of that film. Yeah. Jennifer's Body, starring Megan Fox. A tremendous song, and also like the, the film itself, even for its aesthetic, borrow it set itself in the nineties amidst this, because of the tones of the film, all to do with like femininity and coming of age and sexual discovery, seemed like a very relevant album for the the makers of the film at the time. Um, the biggest single off this was Doll Parts, and I first saw Doll Parts when Courtney Love did a, a when Hole did a performance on Jules Holland, which I think to date is still actually one of the. the the best things that's been on Joe's Holland amidst their fucking at the drive-in throwing chairs at the ceiling. Is that when you turned 36? <sighs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catching up with Joe's. <laughs> um, at the drive-in throwing chairs at the ceiling and then fucking uh, Josh Holm doing his six-monthly fucking residency or whatever <laughs> it is he does. And Doll Parts was about Courtney's con- like inner conflict over Kurt's love of her and her sense of unworthiness and her own body images. Um, I think Courtney and body images and a reputation as a, a mouthpiece for empowerment, in hindsight, is, is problematic. I think at the time it was very true, and I'm sure some people here probably have something to add on this, but that Courtney Love so heavily bought in subsequently to, to plastic surgery, and I mean like disfiguring levels of mm. plastic surgery, it, it strangely, um, she seems like a woman that cracked mentally. I mean, I know she was always eccentric, but she seems like a woman who became somewhat cracked uh, at, at some point, because it, it seems like she's never really known who she is, and she does things that seem to undermine everything she believed in previously. You know, So you take her comments about Madonna, and Madonna's kind of redundant role as this pin-up woman. And then Courtney Love aspired to something very similar with her own, especially with her own solo career. Um, and then she dissolved Hole and then restarted Hole to, to launch just one album, Nobody's, Nobody's Daughter. Daughter. Yeah. Fucking terrible. That was originally meant to be her own project, but she reappropriated Hole to try and lend it credibility. And then Eric got pretty raging about it. And so she dissolved Hole finally. Something really strange about Courtney Love, and that's partly why she's so compelling. But it, she's also it's really difficult to to know what that she says that you can actually take particularly seriously. Um, it's also a really good actor. She's a fucking tremendous actor. Her, her role in The People versus Larry yeah, Flynn is so, absolutely so brilliant. Yeah. She they couldn't have cast anyone better for that role, and especially at the end um, when she uh, dies of AIDS in the bath. It's, it's fucking such an incredible scene. Um, yeah, she's she's brilliant in that. She's really gifted, partly because she's so fucking mad. Um, <laughs> the song Credit in the Straight World is actually a cover, by the way. It was a cover of a Welsh band 
but young marble giants uh, and they fucking hated it they said they turned it into a pornographic Led Zeppelin track that sounds <laughs> great I'm well into that it's like the best kind of Led Zeppelin I kind of thought Led Zeppelin went for porn, pornographic in all their tracks but um, this is I think it's the intro that did it for them The album doesn't slow down towards the end. It's got soft, softer, softest, which also features Cobain. She walks over me, which is actually she walks on me, which is fucking brilliant. Really heavy, really punk. Really shows uh, where they came from. voice is so good. She's got a fucking brilliant voice. An absolutely brilliant voice. Like, when her voice breaks, it is just as good as any voice. As good as Cobain's, easily. Like she's a tremendous singer. Um, and yeah, and then you've got I Think That I Would Die, which apparently is about their uh, custody battle with child protection services over Francis yeah. uh, Bean. You um, lost that, didn't they? Uh, she was taken off for a while, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Gutless, which was done by uh, remixed by Jay Massis. Uh, the final track, Rockstar, is not actually the track Rockstar. The final track, Rockstar, is actually the track Olympia. And Hole decided to change the track list in too late. And the covers had already been printed, so it kind of, in perpetuity, became known as Rockstar. But um, it was about heart issues with the Riot Girl scene down in Olympia. And uh, there's like extended versions of it, extended mixes of it, that include lyrics like, a fascist state and everyone's the same, uh, to do with going to Olympia, uh, going to college and school down there and the right girl kind of orthodoxy that existed um, and finishes with this kind of sarcastic refrain of do it for the kids, yeah, do it for the kids, yeah. I just think so much to this album, like, it's so interesting, it's so accomplished. Like, it's just aged brilliantly, it's certainly a lot better than anything she did after it. And whilst the other albums are brilliant niche albums, I think this, especially from the perspective of women, must have been like such a breath of fresh air and such a pivotal record in terms of what you can achieve as a, a woman in rock music in the kind of contemporary climate. And fuck it, I mean, as, as mad as fuck as Courtney is, she was such an interesting character to watch. I think just the thing to finish on when we're talking about this though is the thing you said about the Kurt Cobain's death and I have to admit watching uh, Nick Broomfield watching Kurt and Courtney and being somewhat caught up in the whole El Ducci bullshit um, I think as I've gotten older I've realised it's pretty fucking irresponsible and kind of shameless to, to endorse that there's really no evidence for it I no, think it's it's mental. None, none at all. Uh, it's it's mental that people find it easier to believe that than that, that a guy who had a fixation on guns, who'd posed for film uh, photos with guns in his mouth, who had tried to commit suicide multiple times, who'd spent fucking ten years writing about suicide. But this is what grunge had become. It became a tabloid thing. It was so huge, and Kurt and Courtney were you know as famous as anybody in the world. And that was kind of how it all spiralled out of control and then ended. Yeah, well, I mean, there were, there were rumours about Kristen Pfaff as well, that she got too close to Kurt and yeah. that she'd left the band. Kristen Pfaff's mum refused to accept the verdict on her death 
and believed that she'd gone back to Seattle to move her stuff back to Minneapolis and that somebody had got her and had forcibly overdosed Kristen Pfaff that night she was back there. Mm -hmm. And so the amount of like rumours, and when you consider that in the context of Courtney Love has a daughter that's grown up hearing that her mum murdered her dad in the increasingly more elaborate, uh, ridiculous ways. Um, yeah, I, it's weird thinking back on that. Because at the time, I was sort of morbidly curious about that and kind of like endorsed it and used to, oh, but did you hear this? And on oh, no, the she fell in front of a train mysteriously and stuff. But I think looking back at that, much as I do, things like, you know, Dr. David Kelly and uh, various other conspiracy theories, and like, it's, it's easy to see how you buy into that because you want reality to be so much more explicable and romantic and that these things make a lot more sense. But really, Kurt Cobain fucking killed himself. <laughs> that's just, that's what happened. It's, uh, it's unpleasant to think about it, but that's what, he, that's what he did. But yeah, so this is a fucking great album. They're a compelling band. She's a total arsehole and a fucking yeah. nightmare, but most of the best musicians are probably total arseholes. Yeah. Cool. That's true. Well, I guess that's... That's my... That's your argument. That's your Two argument. cents. Yeah, I guess that's all of our cases made then. And given that I spoke the most, I think I should win. Um, you're wrong, but <laughs> I admire your impassioned uh, defence of that record. Great. Okay, good. It's not going to go in, though. Um, <laughs> sorry, this has probably gone on way over time. I can't even bring myself to look at the clock. Um, I'm gauging it based on David's expression. But if there's anything about the stuff we've talked about that you're curious about or just have a f general input on, apart from closed vowels, thanks for that. Yeah. Bush? Was it? Was it a there were a well, few. There are no, few no, 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 hang on. Repeat the question first of all for folk. Yeah. <laughs> was it were a lot? Were there any or, or a lot of grunge bands that came out of the UK? It was mostly sort of second generation, and then it sort of all merged into different things. Like Brit rock took a big influence. So you know bands like Feeder and uh, even like Idlewild wanted to be Pearl Jam for a while. Um, and and stuff like that. So, but yeah, it was a very regional sound to begin with. So okay. the UK was quite slow. In terms of like the punky side of grunge, there was a band called Fudge Tunnel who were kind of called noise metal here. Fudge Tunnel basically went for like the Melvins and Dino sound with their early stuff, and but there was more. There seemed to be more representation for like the cornier side of grunge over here, and it did seem to come afterwards. Albeit Bush were about, but they obviously were just fucking cashing in. Um, there was a band called Bivouac. There was a band called Redwood. A band called Gigantic. They all came afterwards. And Don't forget about uh, Glasgow's Silskin. Glasgow Stiltskin, that's, you know, and we, oh, we, yeah. it was an unbelievable oh, oversight that we didn't include inside, but we will include inside when it comes to the I radio. mean, if we were just doing hit singles, this would be up there. And everyone's uh, heard this. I didn't realise this band was Scottish, but I mean, this is just like everybody, a, a board has sat down and said, can we recreate Smells Like Teen Spirit? Fat man starts to fall, you're in a hostile place, I hear your face. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know it was the Sky Sports Scotland games. Oh, Jesus. Can I just say, right, anyway. so I bought the single for Inside because I was about 40 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> drove myself into town. But on the B side of the single for Inside, and I don't know if they even had a fucking album, this band. The guy, by the way, the singer from Stiltskin ended up singing in Genesis when Genesis reformed. Oh, um, fucking hell. All right. <laughs> um, but uh, this B side to this was a song called America, and you should go and listen to it, right? Because it's that thing that you get, there's a name for it where you hear lyrics wrong, right? And the whole fucking time, it doesn't seem like it should be possible, the Yanni fucking Laurel thing. The song America sounds like he's singing Walk Like a Duck, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's because he's so, his vowels are so fucking closed that he's going, Walk Like a Duck! And it, yeah. honestly, it is. And I didn't have the fucking liner notes and I was sure that he was singing Walk Like a Duck and it, that's how it always remained. One of my favourite misheard lyrics is uh, You stole the sun from my heart by Master Preachers. It sounds like You stole the sun from my arse. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never be able to hear it now. Um, yeah, so the last thing I want to play is uh, Have you heard the song Moist Vagina by Nirvana? Oh, it's such a good song. Fucking brilliant song, Fucking right? Song. What's not so good is that Sonic Youth decided to do a cover of it. I've heard this as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking spectacular and oh fucking Kim Gordon god love her she's fucking ridiculous um, yeah thanks for coming to watch this we're yes, going to play a little you. bit of this song and then we want you to applaud proportionally and how bad this song is okay <laughs> think what Nirvana meant to say was. <laughs> anyway, thanks. Our vows are so closed. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks for coming along to this. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll do another one soon. Maybe. Yeah, on a, an even more controversial topic picked by Mark. Yeah. It's going to be pop punk, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Just letting you know. <laughs> Great. By the way, last fact, grunge um, apparently credited to Mark Arm has been the first person to mention it. Not Mark Yarm. <laughs> Right, and Mark Yarm released the book, and in the book, Mark Yarm talks about Mark Arm saying oh, the word grunge inception. first. There's a fucking. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks to the fine. Thank dog. you very much. Thanks to Dave on the tunes earlier. Ran to work. Uh, and thanks to all of you for coming down. Yes, we appreciate it. You're okay. awesome. Thank you. Great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>